This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and in this episode of Rear Vision, the spectacular collapse of cryptocurrency. Might it be terminal? Like I was saying, it's FTX. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. I don't think so. Earlier this year, FTX enlisted comedian Larry David to sell its crypto trading platform with his signature charm. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. Months later, in a prophetic turn of events, Larry David's been proven right. The company, which rose to become one of the top five crypto trading platforms, tanked overnight, owing billions of dollars. Its bankruptcy filing sent shockwaves through the sector as investors, from hedge funds to mum and dad hobbyists, fretted about the wide-ranging impacts. The most obvious of which is that they've lost their money. In this rear vision, we'll look at the history of cryptocurrency, how it began with Bitcoin, an electronic currency largely understood only by computer geeks, and later boomed as crypto markets like FTX made it easy to buy. Let's begin with the most recent news, the collapse of FTX. It's complicated in its particulars, but the underlying story is an old one, mismanagement of customer funds. In this case, the founder of FTX, Sam Bankman-Fried, using investors' money in unauthorised speculation. When news of this broke, customers tried to get their money out, sparking something like a classic bank run on FTX. Well, what happened at FTX has a lot to do with the connections between two companies that were founded by Sam Bankman-Fried, both FTX and Alameda Research. Hi, I'm Brandi Hadley. I'm an associate professor at Appalachian State University. FTX ran one of the largest cryptocurrency exchanges where many crypto investors trade and hold their cryptocurrency, similar to how a traditional broker enables investors to trade stocks on the New York Stock Exchange. While Alameda Research is a hedge fund that trades and invests in cryptocurrencies and crypto companies. Within the traditional financial sector, these two companies would be separate firms entirely, or at least have firewalls in place between them. But this month, we learned that that wasn't the case. In early November, several news outlets reported that a significant proportion of Alameda's assets were a type of cryptocurrency that was released by FTX itself. That created some concern. And then a few days later, news broke that FTX had allegedly been loaning customer assets to Alameda for risky trades without the consent of their customers, and then also issuing its own FTX cryptocurrency for Alameda to use as collateral and loans. As a result of that news, criminal and regulatory investigators began scrutinizing FTX for potentially violating some securities laws. This led to more concern and eventually led to essentially a bank run on FTX. Large crypto investors like FTX's competitor Binance, as well as individuals, began to sell off all the cryptocurrency that they held on FTX's exchange. They were selling off so much that FTX quickly lost its ability to meet these customer demands and had to halt trading and withdrawals. As a result, on November 14th, FTX, Alameda Research, and 130 other affiliated companies that were founded by Bankman-Fried filed for bankruptcy. On that same day, FTX was also hit by an apparent insider hack and lost $600 million worth of cryptocurrency. Since the bankruptcy, we've learned much more. According to FTX's new CEO, there's evidence of incredible corporate mismanagement, more substantial than even that of Enron, he has said. 
including large withdrawals leading up to the bankruptcy, the use of customer funds for personal real estate investment, and a lack of basic accounting records. The bankruptcy of FTX is likely to leave more than a million suppliers, employees, and investors who bought cryptocurrencies through the exchange or invested in these companies with no way to get their money back. We'll hear more about crypto exchanges shortly, but let's go back to the appearance of the first cryptocurrency, Bitcoin. The domain name Bitcoin.com was registered in 2008 and linked to a research paper whose author, Satoshi Nakamoto, became the subject of intense speculation. Some people found the idea of a system of virtual money existing outside government control very appealing. Transactions would be verified through a decentralised ledger called a blockchain, a technology that bypassed the need for any intervening intermediary in those transactions. Michael O'Malley is a professor of US history at George Mason University in Virginia. Well, I'd written a book about the history of money in the United States, and I was particularly interested in debates about value. What was the source and the nature of value in money? And I was particularly interested in the history of the gold standard. There's still a significant faction in the United States that thinks we should go to the gold standard. The arguments for gold are always about its distance from politics. They'll always present it as safe from politics. Politicians can't increase the amount of gold. You can't adulterate it. And crypto had a lot of the features of gold in that it could not be theoretically monkeyed with. And that's the first thing I thought of, the similarities to the gold standard. And there are some similarities among, say, libertarians who often want the gold standard because they see it as a form of currency that's outside of government interference. The blockchain would certify the transaction, but originally the blockchain was presented as being beyond scrutiny. So it was for libertarians who wanted to conduct transactions that the government couldn't monitor originally. Now, I think the the government, at least the United States government, I believe, has learned how to monitor those transactions and has gotten very good at it. But the original presentation, when I was first writing that, was all about how it was safe from scrutiny. So it attracted, really, a lot of criminals, I think. The value of Bitcoin was zero in January 2009, but over the years has gone up and down, sometimes spectacularly. Well, initially, the idea of a cryptocurrency is that it'll be an alternative way of making payments to a conventional currency. So it's an alternative to the Australian dollar or the euro or the yen. And so it's going to be a a payments mechanism. I'm John Hawkins. I'm a senior lecturer at the University of Canberra, and I formerly worked at the Reserve Bank and the Bank of International Settlements. And it would differ from a note or a coin in that it didn't exist in a physical form. You couldn't hold it in your hand. But it would also differ from a bank deposit in that instead of being on a ledger at a single bank, it would be decentralised. There would be multiple versions of the ledger held on individual people's computers. So that that was the, the vision, but more than a decade since the first cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, was launched, it hasn't really taken off as a payment instrument. You know, you walk down Pitt Street, uh, doubt you'll find any stores that would accept Bitcoin, let alone any of the 20,000 other cryptocurrencies. Virtually the only area where it seems to be used much is in the dark web, people buying illegal drugs and people playing ransom demands and things like that, where 
not being able to be traced is, is very important. And so that's the attraction. The only company I think your listeners would have heard of that accepted Bitcoin was Tesla, and they have stopped accepting it. So now there's virtually no one. John Hawkins says that over time, other possible functions for Bitcoin have been proposed. Initially, as I said, it was justified as a payment instrument. Then when that didn't sort of work out, it was was said, well, it would be a good hedge against inflation. If inflation takes off, Bitcoin would maintain its value. Because this year we've seen inflation take off and Bitcoin's lost two thirds of its value. So then the argument was, well, it's a good diversification instrument because returns on Bitcoin aren't correlated with returns on stocks. But that's not the case now either. So then people argue, well, it's like gold. It's a safe haven in times of uncertainty. But then when we saw Russia invade Ukraine, the price of Bitcoin fell. So it's not taken that role either. So people are continually trying to find a a justification for it. And part of that is because the only way you make money from Bitcoin is by selling it to somebody else at a higher price. So there's a lot of people with a vested interest in talking up the price. And so that's why you get all these people saying, it's the way of the future, don't miss out on it, jump on board this bandwagon and so on. Even before the creation of Bitcoin, people had begun setting up digital currency exchanges, although many of them, including some in Australia, fell foul of financial authorities. There are now hundreds of cryptocurrency exchanges, although they aren't the only way to buy virtual money. In order to acquire cryptocurrency, you can either be a network participant and and run your own node, effectively what's called mining in cryptocurrency where you are a participant, you participate in running the code, in running the transactions, and then you get a reward in cryptocurrency for doing that work. That's one way of acquiring cryptocurrency. My name's Aaron Lane, and I am a senior lecturer in RMIT's Blockchain Innovation Hub in Melbourne. The other way is, is you buy and sell it from somebody else. And that's really the, the business model of exchanges. They acquire uh, you know, large amounts of cryptocurrency from miners or other people with crypto assets, and then effectively on sell them to consumers. And for most people, most you know, sort of everyday ordinary people are going to acquire cryptocurrency through a cryptocurrency exchange or, or what has been called a digital currency exchange. And so we see hundreds, if not thousands, of these exchanges around the world. In Australia, it's believed that there are about 400 cryptocurrency exchanges that have registered with Austrac, although that register is not public, and so it's hard to get an actual figure. Digital currency exchanges like FTX exploded into the mainstream in recent years, many pitching themselves as safe, stable investments with celebrity endorsements. Accessible through an app on your phone, they made it easy for people who knew nothing about either technology or cryptocurrency to invest. A lot of these platforms that individuals use to buy and sell cryptocurrencies are very accessible. I'm Brian Blank, and I am an assistant professor of finance at Mississippi State University. An example of a platform that a lot of individuals use to buy and sell cryptocurrencies 
is an application called Robinhood, which is not solely focused on cryptocurrencies. You can also buy and sell stocks on this app, but this is an app that you can pull up on your phone. You, in a matter of a few clicks with your thumb, can be the owner of basically as much as you want in cryptocurrency. And when you make these trades, oftentimes there are celebratory events like confetti going across the screen to celebrate that you've bought some more cryptocurrency. And so these are platforms that are easy to use. They've become really popular and, frankly, gamified investment to make it a little bit more fun for the average individual that doesn't necessarily think of buying stocks or cryptocurrencies as a big, exciting thing. And I think that's some of what's really drawn this sector that used to be, as you noted, much more for people that understood these technologies into the mainstream where now almost everybody's heard of Bitcoin. And a lot of people probably own it without really understanding what they own. It's easy to set up an account with a crypto exchange. It's rather like setting up a bank account. But it's likely many people didn't understand that these exchanges are largely unregulated and lacked the basic protections offered by a brokerage or a bank. Also, the exchanges didn't provide full legal ownership of their asset to their customers. The customer couldn't actually access their crypto. Typically what happens is you go on and you create an account Usually the legitimate ones anyway have uh, a series of identification checks where you need to prove your identity as part of their know your customer anti-money laundering compliance. Once all that's done, you, you then deposit Australian dollars for in Australia onto that cryptocurrency exchange and you can use those dollars to, to purchase cryptocurrency. And, and you're making that choice about what cryptocurrency you want to purchase. Now, if you, you have a look online, you can see that there are over 10,000 different cryptocurrencies that have been brought into existence. But the market concentration in terms of the, the market capitalization is, is very, very concentrated into really the top, top 20 cryptocurrencies. So not every exchange is going to have all of the different cryptocurrencies available. Most will at least have, you know, maybe the top two, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Other exchanges might have a, a bigger offering depending on, on the exchange. And from that point, you will be allocated cryptocurrency that you've, you've notionally purchased. The key point is, though, that at that point, your cryptocurrency is not held by you kind of in a, in a physical sense. You don't have control, direct control over that cryptocurrency. Instead, you really have a credit with that cryptocurrency exchange that they hold that cryptocurrency on your behalf. I think in, in cryptocurrency, what's important is control. And in order to control cryptocurrency, you'd need access to a private key. Without going too deep into to cryptography, 
in order to send a cryptocurrency transaction, you need two addresses or, or two keys. You've got a public key, which is kind of like your like a PO box or an email address, where that's the one that you send to people to say, hey, send me an email at this address. Your private key is like a password. It's the thing that, that opens that PO box or lets you into your email. When you purchase cryptocurrency on a cryptocurrency exchange, the functionality of the platform allows you to send that cryptocurrency to, to an address that you, you nominate. But you don't have the private key. The exchange has that private key. It's the exchange that is doing that transaction really on your behalf. Conceptually, cryptocurrencies seem to be something like both a currency and a share, without really being either. If we think back to Bitcoin, I think a lot of the reason that Bitcoin was developed was to replace currencies. So in that regard, cryptocurrencies, while they don't necessarily function quite in the same way that, say, the US dollar does, a lot of their intended purpose was similar, at least at some point. But as you noted, nobody buys anything with cryptocurrencies. So acting like their money really doesn't make all that much sense. And so to your point, they are a little bit like hybrids, where they have some of the traits of a currency, but also some of the traits of investments. And that's why a lot of the things that we've been talking about, like exchanges, have a similar counterpart within stock markets. However, there are some differences. While an investment in a company would involve you owning a particular percentage of that company and maybe receiving dividends and hopefully your investment growing in value over time as this company provides a service, a lot of these firms in the crypto space have a lot less revenue, provide fewer goods and services, and so you're right. They're not quite the same, and they're not always as real in that regard. I first became aware of how pervasive crypto had become when a friend related how his son had pulled out a crypto credit card over lunch and paid his mother's phone bill. Although he'd obviously found a way to use his crypto wealth in the real world, virtual money is a long way from replacing government-backed currencies. There are a number of merchants that will accept cryptocurrency. And so they need to be able to figure out, well, how do, how do we go through the mechanics of accepting those, those payments? And so in order to make it a bit more user-friendly, we have started seeing some financial products on the market where you can essentially use a card like a debit card or like a credit card, which will then deduct you know, from your cryptocurrency balance. But there is a third party intermediary in the middle there. So we, we don't see a lot of direct kind of peer-to-peer -peer merchants that, that are accepting those, those cryptocurrency payments. And I think there's good reason for, for that as well. And volatility is the big one. That if you're holding an asset that is going up and, and, and is going down in, in price, if you're a purchaser, you don't necessarily want to be spending your 
cryptocurrency if, if you think it might go up in price. And, and as a vendor, you, you probably don't want to accept cryptocurrency if you think it might go down in price. So look, there, there are some reasons why we're not seeing a huge uptake in, in the payments, but keep in mind that is for Australia and wealthy countries that trust their, their payments system. Our payment system in Australia is very, very good. In countries where the payment infrastructure isn't so good or where there are concerns about corruption in the banking system or in the government system, it's, it's those places around the world where we may see this tape off a lot more. As further news has come out about the collapse of FTX, it's emerged that FTX Australia had bypassed the regular process for obtaining a financial services license here by taking over a smaller company that already had a license. Although ASIC, the Australian Securities and Investment Commission, has suspended that license, cryptocurrency exchanges are not currently regulated here beyond the initial customer identification steps, similar to those you need for getting a bank account. So is there a need for greater regulation of cryptocurrency? There is talk, though, about that there should be a, a bit more regulation, particularly of the sort of stable coins, which claim to be backed by assets. So there was a company called Tether, which is the largest stable coin, and it got fined tens of millions of dollars in the US for making claims that apparently weren't true. And its response was to pull out of the US and um, locate into the Caribbean where they were less regulated. So that you would think would not give you a lot of confidence. But there's, there's talk about people who are claiming to be issuing an asset that's fully backed by real assets, that that has to be true if you're going to say that. So that might be an area where there's more regulation. But it is, it is a sort of a hard area to regulate because there's not a, not a Bitcoin company that you can take to court. There's not a, a CEO of Bitcoin that you can hold responsible for things. So the, the sort of decentralized nature, the fact that it sort of exists in sort of cyberspace rather than having a, a physical location makes it a lot harder to regulate. It's very hard to stop Australians going on the web and dealing with a company in the Caribbean if they want to. The fallout from the FTX collapse continues with another exchange, Coinbase, shaving 25% off its value amid a crisis of confidence for the sector. Well, I think they've lost value from about $3 trillion to about $800 billion. So that's a loss of over 70%. So I suspect it's a monetary loss as well as a loss of confidence. But I think you've got to put it into perspective. Cryptocurrencies have always been plagued by problems, going back to a lot of problems with things like Mt. Gox, the problems we had last year. So in one sense, it's nothing new. That's Satyajit Das, the former banker who predicted the global financial crisis. It's been a bad year for crypto, even before the collapse of FTX. Is this just one more plunge in the volatile timeline of crypto, or might it be terminal? Many eminent economists and investors have described cryptocurrency as a speculative bubble, even a Ponzi scheme. Are we seeing the beginning of its death spiral? Look, I think people have predicted the death of cryptocurrency over and over and over again, and yet it continues. Yes, there are some projects out there and, and, and some cryptocurrencies that have been launched that are 
effectively no longer being traded or, or are worthless or close to worthless. But if you look at the main cryptocurrencies, you know, let's say the, the top 100, those are in the most part, you know, legitimate projects. And there are a variety of, of different use cases that sit behind them. In recent years, what we've seen is an emergence of NFTs and digital art projects. And these have been incredibly popular and have, have captured really mainstream attention. We've got in Australia, just to pick out two projects, the Australian Open have their AO Art Ball, which is, is effectively a, a crypto asset. And the holders of that token can receive value in a, in a number of different ways through experiences, through digital experiences, but also physical real world experiences as well. The Australia Zoo has launched an NFT token to support conservation efforts in the real world. So I, I think that, that there are a number of different projects that are building sort of tangible value. So that's that's the first thing. Second thing I say in, in terms of cryptocurrency as a as a payment platform, Australia has a pretty good payment system. We trust our government generally, we trust our banks generally, but that is not true all around the world. And I think in, in times of crisis, in times of turmoil, I think having a system which is robust and doesn't rely on any single centralized entity is something that is valued by consumers. It is quite possible, I think, that the enthusiasm will die out. I mean, those three quarters or four fifths of people who, are, who have lost money on Bitcoin might not be particularly enthusiastic about buying uh, more of it. And if, if people just sort of get sick of it, then the price will just drop down to, to almost nothing and maybe it just goes away. The crypto market peaked around about the start of the year at around three trillion US dollars and it's now less than one trillion US dollars. So it's gone up and down quite a lot, but I think it's quite possible that we've we've seen peak crypto pass. And it, it is a bit like the dot-com bubble in, in that it, it's based on a sort of new technology, so-called blockchain. And in the same way as out of the sort of ruins of the dot-com bubble, there were companies that have been extremely successful, like Amazon. It's quite possible that some uses of the blockchain will be found. So the underlying technology will have a use, but it may well be that these cryptocurrencies aren't one of the uses. One thing that was suggested was that it might facilitate international currency transfers. So rather than using American Express or something, people could uh, move money across international borders more cheaply by converting into a, a cryptocurrency and converting it back again. It was true a decade ago that there were quite large fees if you went to your local bank and wanted to transfer money to another country, they'd charge you quite a lot. Those fees, though, have been coming down over time. And there's companies that transfer funds are now at uh, much cheaper rates. So I think that that case is now a lot less than it used to be. As I said earlier, it, it really hasn't taken off as a general payments instrument. And it's also going to face a challenge soon from central bank digital currencies. So central banks, Reserve Bank of Australia, Bank of England, People's Bank of China, are themselves 
thinking about issuing uh, an electronic form of a currency. So it'd be an electronic form of the Australian dollar. So that would be stable in value and it would be safe and it would be backed by the central bank and the government. And the, the Bank of International Settlements chief economist commented that you know, anything a cryptocurrency can do, a central bank digital currency could do better. Dr John Hawkins from the University of Canberra. Thanks to him and my other guests, Brandy Hadley, Brian Blank, Aaron Lane and Michael O'Mara. You'll find their details on the Rear Vision website. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano for ABC RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.